we're in um, talking about justification. So let's open in prayer. Father, thanks for today and bringing us out to your house and for a beautiful morning out. And the sun coming up over the horizon was just gorgeous. Thank you for the ability to see it and appreciate it and know who made it. And I pray that you would uh, touch our hearts now as we study. Thank you again for this day in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Um, we're talking about justification. We started that last week. Um, one of the great words of salvation. We're going to be going through a bunch of these um, to try and fill out um, this whole concept of what it means to be saved or be redeemed. Justification, we said last week, was uh, not to be acquitted. did not mean to just be acquitted before the bar of God, just to be dismissed, case dismissed. Um, it includes that, but it's not limited to that. All right? It's not limited to that. It doesn't mean to be pardoned. What do you mean by pardon? Pardon means that you are guilty, but we're going to, for some reason, decide not to cause you to pay the penalty for that. Talk about pardons. And it doesn't mean to be paroled. What's paroled? You get out on good behavior. Um, it's interesting. A lot of times there are people that treat our salvation like a parole, right? In other words, we're saved, but you know, if we really foul up bad... All bets are off. Um, there are certain denominations where you can lose your salvation. That's sort of like being paroled. If you don't check in with your parole officer once in a while and you don't do something right, you can have your um, parole rescinded and go back to prison. And there are some faiths, some Christian faiths, that, that uh, believe that if you don't do certain things after you're saved, if you don't... Um, act in a certain way, you can lose your salvation. You go back to the condemnation of being lost. That's sort of a pretty miserable way to exist. I don't know about you. Because what's the problem with that thinking? Just at a practical level. Well, how do you know you are, right? How do you know you didn't do something that you didn't know about, right, that caused you to lose it? Um, there are people who really believe this. They argue for this. They, and we're going to talk about security of salvation in an upcoming topic. But, but justification is not to be paroled. In fact, if there's anything that the New Testament teaches, is that justification is a once-for-all, never-to-be-repeated, irrevocable act. What does it mean? God doesn't take it back. God doesn't unjustify you. Because when God justified you, what did he know about you? Everything. So he knew all of the times you would mess up. He knew all of the sins that were yet to come from you, but yet he forgave you anyways. So how can you ever get one sin up on God? You can't. Um, justification is a once-for-all, never-to-be-repeated act. And what the Bible teaches that it is, it is a judicial or forensic, that's a good word, forensic act of God, where on the account of Christ he declares the guilty sinner righteous. Notice what it says here, on account of Christ. It's not that, see, if God acquitted you, he'd just sort of like forget about the charges. God doesn't forget about the charges. The charges are real. The sin is real. And there's a penalty that needs to be paid. But the reason he can allow you to go free is because somebody else paid the penalty for it. Someone else paid the price for your sin. And that's why God can forgive us and justify us. If you look at Romans 3 on this, if you go to Romans 3, we're 
Let's start in verse 21, and we're just going to read down through here and get an understanding of what justification is. Romans, really chapter 3, ver, cha, or chapter 3 through chapter 8, is the theology of justification, sanctification, and glorification. If you really want to learn those three topics, this is where you go. Because if you get these three chapters down, you've got pretty much those three doctrines nailed down and what they are. Sanctification, justification. Glorification. Okay. But let's start in verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. The righteousness of God. What, what kind of righteousness do you need to be able to stand in God's presence? Perfect. His righteousness. Perfect righteousness. Now, is there a righteousness which is by the law? Yeah, there is. Is it good enough? No. No. That's the problem. See, that's what Paul was banking on. Remember, he said, uh, as far as the law was, I was blameless, Philippians 3. But see, that's not good enough. It's not good enough to be righteous by the law because the law was never intended, one, to make you righteous, and two, you're never going to measure up to it. You're never going to do what the law says that you are to do. It's, a, it's an infallible righteousness. But he said the righteousness of God has been manifest or revealed apart from the law. In other words, it's not by law that you get this righteousness of God. It's another way. And although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, what's the law and the prophets? To Paul. Old Testament. And this is what Paul's trying to do here in Romans. He's, he's talking about justification, but he's saying, you know, guys, this was in the Old Testament. It's not like it wasn't there. It's just that you missed it. I'm not coming up with something new because that's what the Jewish people would believe. They'd say, wait a minute, we've been taught all our life that you're justified by keeping the law. We're told that you do this and this and this and this and you're circumcised and you go do the temple sacrifice and blah, 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 blah. And that's how I get to be righteous. And Paul says, you know, you guys missed it. It was even in the law and the prophets. And he's going to prove it in chapter 4. He's not going to just say it, he's going to prove it. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there's no distinction. Okay, where does this righteousness come from? Faith in who? Jesus. It's not by what you do, it's by who you believe in. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Believe what? Believe what God has said about this. For there is no distinction. What's the idea of no distinction? Well, what he's talking about there is there's no distinction between any man. Whether you're a Jew, whether you're a Gentile, whether you're a pagan believer. Now, he's already talked about three different classes of people in Romans 1 through 3. He's talked about the person who, you think about the person in the middle of bongo, bongo, never heard anything about God. He says they're guilty before God because they have the... God manifested in creation. Then you talk about the moral man. Who are they? They're civilized. They know things. They're, they have a certain morality about them. And Paul says, you're guilty because you know that there's a morality and you live by that morality. And then he talks to the Jews and says, you guys have the actual words of God. And he says, here, there's no distinction between any three of you guys. Any three groups of people, there's no distinction for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Everybody knows that verse. All of sin, what does it mean to cross the line, to, to miss the mark? You fall short of what God expects. No matter how hard you try, you don't quite get there. All of us has fallen short. 
and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. How are you justified? There's that word that pops up. To be declared righteous before God. How are you declared righteous according to this? Through Jesus Christ. Through the redemption that is in Christ. What's redemption? It means to buy back. To purchase. How is it that you're justified? You're not justified because God just decides to... Uh, do away with the charges. You're not justified because God forgets or God just says, well, we'll just sort of forget about all your sin. We'll just sort of pretend it didn't happen. It happened. But the reason I can be justified is because somebody came in and took my place and took the penalty due me so that I can perceive the righteousness of God. Every sin in the universe is always going to be paid for, either by you in hell forever or by Jesus Christ. One or the other. Then it says here, whom God has put forth as a propitiation by his blood. By the way, this is a good translation because it has all those words in it. Remember we talked about that? What's propitiation? That means to a satisfying sacrifice. Christ, this is the thing here, and we're going to talk about atonement. But there's a, a movement in Christianity today that we want to say, well, talk about the penal substitution theory of the atonement. What does that mean? That means Christ, when he died, satisfied God's wrath against sin. Christ satisfied God's wrath. That's what it means to be a propitiation. All right? And there are people today that say, well, we don't really like that concept. Why would God judge his son? In fact, Brian McLaren, who you should run from, all right, if his name pops up, just run the other way because when God's fire falls, you might get singed if you're around him. That's a joke. Um, the, guy, the guy is bad news, but he says, uh, the idea of God punishing Christ for my sin sounds like cosmic child abuse. He rejects the, substi the penal substitution. What's the penal substitution? I am guilty, I am condemned, and Christ came in and he took my wrath. The wrath that God had reserved for Alan Schaefer, Christ took. All of it. And God didn't go easy on his son because he was his son. He took the full brunt of the wrath that was due me. That's substitution. And people don't like the concept that Christ, or that not Christ, but that God would punish his son for my sin. But this passage explains very clearly what is Christ. He is the propitiation. He is the sacrifice which satisfies the wrath of God. And because of that, I'm able to be justified. It's not that God just forgets about my sin, but somebody took my place. And that's what he's talking about here. How am I justified? Somebody took my sin upon him and paid the price. And that's what allows me to go free. Absolutely. Jesus knew what he was doing, and Jesus came into the world to do that. That is why he came into the world. He came to pay that penalty. That was his purpose in life. And Hebrews talks about that. Well, yeah. For the people who don't like the notion that God would be this horrible, you know, and what you just said, that would put his son through that, then if what they are against would be so wrong, what 
do they want to be the substitute for sin? I mean, do they then have to get rid of sin if they have to get rid of... They want to turn God into this loving deity that, that ultimately will redeem everyone. In fact, that's where McLaren ultimately lands. Okay. It's sort of a universalism. Okay, yeah. um, and, and understand where we're coming from here, folks. Remember, when we come to these topics, we've got to go with what the scripture says, not with what our brains come up with, right? We've already talked about that in the last couple of years, where when you subject the scripture, the theology of scripture, to your mind, which is fallen, and you use your logic, which is fouled up to start out with, you're going to wind up with wrong answers. You've got to go with what the scripture says. What is it saying here very clearly in Romans chapter 3? Jesus is the propitiation. He is the sacrifice that satisfies the wrath of Almighty God. And if you don't like the wrath of Almighty God, that's tough because that's what the scripture is talking about. It's not up to you to decide what God is and isn't or how he should or should not act. And it says here, God has put him forth as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. How is it that this propitiation that Christ did for me is applied to me? Well, I take it by faith. I believe in what he has done. I take him as my Lord and my Savior and I ask him to forgive me on the basis of his sacrifice for me. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. What does that mean? Well, if you read the Old Testament, when David sinned, what did God do? God forgave him, right? On what basis? But what about the penalty for the sin, right? Whatever happened to that? What, if you, in fact, if you read the Old Testament just at a 20,000 foot level, you could say, well, now wait a minute. Okay, Saul sinned and he didn't get forgiveness. David sinned and he did. Moses received forgiveness. Abraham received forgiveness. But there's a whole lot of other people that didn't. On what basis does God have a right to forgive one person and not the other? And what does he do about the sin that they committed? I mean, somebody's got to pay for that. There wasn't a sacrifice that David could do for his sin, right? Other than die, that was, the, that was the penalty. And so the point is that people could accuse God of being unfair or unjust or capricious. And what Paul is saying here is, no, God is not capricious, God is not unjust, because what did God know would happen to all of that sin? Jesus would pay for it. Mm -hmm. Now, did the people then know that? No. Necessarily, no. They knew that God would take care of it, but how? That was all fuzzy. But they knew that God would take care of it somehow. And when David asked for God's forgiveness in, in Psalm 32, he did not ask for God's forgiveness on the basis of a sacrifice. He said, if you would have wanted a sacrifice, I'll give that. That's easy. But there's no sacrifice. He asked for God's forgiveness based on God's character. You are a forgiving God. You're a loving God. You're a gracious God. And that's the basis I seek forgiveness, not because I deserve it, not because I've earned it, not because I can give you a sacrifice, because there's none of that that's going to happen here. It's only on your character alone that I can receive forgiveness. Yeah? You're right. You see two different people, but why is it that David had a heart for God and, and God would be able to forgive him? 
It's because it's, it's of God's character and because God knew that someday in the future, who would pay for all of the sins that David ever committed? Jesus Christ. That's what he's saying here. God's forbearance, and the idea of forbearance there is to pass over, to put up with. What enabled God to put up with the sins of the Old Testament saints? Because he could put them on account. And when Christ came along and died on the cross, what did Christ do to all of that sin? Paid it all. So David's forgiveness was not based on a past act of Christ's sacrifice, but on a future one that God knew would be coming. Ours is based on a past act of Christ's sacrifice. But the crux of it, and here's the thing to understand, the focal point of all of this is the death of Christ on the cross. That's the focal point of history. Because that's what makes forgiveness and salvation possible. Because somebody paid the price. And what it's saying here is God, through Christ, paid the price to who? Who did Christ pay the price to? God, the Father. See, there's another heresy going around saying, well, Jesus Christ died to buy off Satan. The idea he had to pay a price to Satan to redeem us. That's hogwash. All right? Satan is not a sovereign, omnipotent being. And Christ did not have to buy off Satan. Christ is sovereign over Satan. He is God. There's no buying off Satan. Why did Christ die? To satisfy the righteous wrath of God against sin. That's why he died. And he did it voluntarily. Nobody forced him to do this. And, and let's go on, because we have an answer for Brian here in a minute. Yeah. Well, that's that. Yeah, some think that they went to a temporary place, and yeah, but no. They they were they were in a place of rest and, and waiting for the redemption that is theirs. And then it says it was to show his righteousness at the pre or this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine poor parents he had passed over former sins. And it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of one who has faith in Jesus. This is important, that last phrase. When Christ died, he satisfied the righteous wrath of God against sin, not only for the sins that are past, but for the sins that are present and future. He's the atoning sacrifice. His death paid that penalty. It satisfied fully the wrath of God against sin, 100%. And then it says here that he might be just and the justifier. Now, this is where Brian McLaren misses it. God is God, right? Jesus is God. God the Father is God. God the Holy Spirit is God. All are God. Three distinct persons, one God. So when Jesus Christ died to satisfy the wrath of God, was it God the Father doing cosmic child abuse on his son? No. He was doing it to himself. He was just. What does that mean? God is just in the sense that justice will be served. Eternal justice will be satisfied. Sin will be paid for. But it allows him to be not only the just, but the justifier. How is he the justifier? Because he took the place. The idea is that, you know, you stand before the bar of God, and you're condemned, and God says, okay, here's the penalty, and you're standing there completely bankrupt, no way to pay. And then God takes off his robe, walks around, and pays the penalty for you. Justice is served, but he's the justifier as well. He can be just, 
and the justifier. How can he be just? Because somebody paid the penalty. And that allows him to be the justifier. This is so important to understand, this penal substitution, that to follow it up, you miss the core of the gospel. Because to God, it's one big picture, right? God is outside time. We're going to see that when we get to Romans 8. God, it talks about us as believers. From God's perspective, we're as good as glorified. Now, from our perspective, we're not there yet, right? We're still here. But from God's eternal perspective, he sees everything as one grand event, so to speak. And that's why to God... When we talk about past, present, and future, we're using human terms to define these things because to us, there's a past, there's a present, and there's a future. To God, there's a singular future. I, I don't understand how that all works out. We talked about that when we talked about God's omniscience. So God knows all who will be justified, who are being justified, and who would have been justified. God has it all. He knows it all. And that's why when Christ died, he not only provided redemption for the past, sinners, but he provided redemption for all who would ever believe. And he knew who they were. Does that make any sense? God is out. You've got to think about that. But God, God sees everything from a grand eternal perspective. And it's Christ's death. The reason I am forgiven is because Christ took the penalty for me. That's, that's the only reason that God can forgive me. God say, Alan, I can forgive you because somebody paid the debt that you owe, the sin debt. Right. It is. It's, it, we, we bring our human logic onto it. And, and what it does, well, if, if you want to think about it, when Christ died, he provided, think about maybe a, a different way, he provided opportunity for all who believe to be forgiven, right? So anybody in the future who believes can receive the payment for their sin. Because, and this is the, this is the idea of imputation. That's, that's the whole thing. When it talks about imputation, Paul uses... Accounting terms. Anybody here know bean counters and accountants? Um, he uses accounting terms. And the idea there is to credit to an account. So when I came to Christ and I asked him to forgive me for my sin, God took all of my sin, not only what I did commit, but everything that I would ever commit, and he credited that to Christ's account. All the sin that I committed was given to Christ as though Christ did it. And then he took all of Christ's righteousness and credited it to my account. So when God looks at me, he sees the infinite righteousness of Christ. And when God looks at Christ, he sees the infinite righteousness of Christ because it's an infinite righteousness. So no matter what debit you put against that account, you're never going to draw it down. Does that make any sense? You're never going to draw down the righteousness of Christ. It's an infinite righteousness. So you can put an infinite amount of sin against an infinite amount of righteousness, and you still got an infinite amount of righteousness. It, it won't draw it down. If he forgives us, then why are there different degrees of pearls? We will stand before him for Yeah, um, it, it has to do with our, our faithfulness. The idea here, we're, and we're going to talk about forgiveness here in a, in, a, in a few slides, 
but you have the positional forgiveness. What it means is, as far as the bar of God is concerned, eternal condemnation. I will never stand condemned. I'm, 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 I will never go to hell. I will never pay for my sin. Um, but there is what we call the, the positional or the, the parental forgiveness, where now that I have a relationship with God, when I sin, what do I do? I violate a relationship. And it's that that we as Christians, when it talks about us asking forgiveness, it's not, I need to ask forgiveness because if I forget to ask God to forgive me for yelling at that lady who's pulled out in front of me, I'm going to go to hell. No, but it violates my relationship with him. It's a different kind of thing. It's like your children who, although they might do some bad things, they're still your kids. You, they don't unbecome your child because of their sin. I mean, that's where works versus salvation, because First uh, Corinthians 3, 9 through 15, talk about the degrees of reward based upon our works. Mm -hmm. And um, so that was my two cents on that. Yeah. But I wanted to back up to the, the eternal present that God is mm -hmm. in. The way that I have tried to explain it, and it, it is extremely, it has a deficit to the explanation because you can, but okay, the time zones, you know, the further east you go, the earlier it is, the further west you go, no, vice versa. Yeah, but anyhow. I was getting mixed up too. Yeah, the point is, if you are an astronaut, you're up in a space, you know, shuttle and everything from your looking down is now mm -hmm. and because it's you have to be in california at seven o'clock even to, to see the today show but it's it's 10 o'clock here mm -hmm. and so it's already over mm -hmm. um but when you're far enough outside of the time-space continuum, it's no longer relevant. Right. It's, God is an infinite God. and there, Our brain is going to go to a certain point and then start spinning because we're not going to get it. Okay? But from God's perspective, God sees everything from an eternal perspective. I don't understand how that all works. That answers omniscience. That answers all of those questions. And in fact, God in Isaiah 40 through 48 brings down the challenge, who knows the end from the beginning? And the rhetorical answer is only me. I'm the only one that knows the end from the beginning. And God chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be glorified in eternity future. And he knows it. He knows what's going to happen. And when Christ died, Christ paid the penalty for all of the sin of all of humanity. And here's the thing to understand. He paid it in such a way that had God decided to save every human being, Christ's death would have covered it all. That's how infinite this is. This is not a sacrifice that's limited in terms of uh, its value. It's limited in terms of its what we call efficaciousness. That's a fancy word which means the effectiveness, right? Who gets to go to heaven? People who believe. From our perspective, it's people who believe. Not everybody who believe, who, who, who lives goes to heaven. It's those who believe. Those are the ones that this infinite righteousness is applied to. And what it does is, it's a cool thing. God takes all my debt and gives it to Christ. 
He takes all of Christ's righteousness and gives it to me. So when I stand before God, he doesn't see me, Alan Schaefer, the sinner. He sees Alan Schaefer, the saint. Forensically, judicially, from the eternal perspective of punishment. I am as righteous as Christ is. And that's what justification is. It's not the removal merely of sin and bringing me back to square zero. That would be great. But it's going beyond that. It's adding to me the righteousness of Christ. It's taking away my sin, bringing back to zero, and then adding righteousness of Christ and bringing me up to where Christ is. So someday we are going to be as righteous as Christ. And how is it that God can justify us? How can God declare me righteous on account of Christ? Because Christ took my place. He paid the penalty. He was the propitiation, the sacrifice for me. His blood paid the debt of my sin. Yeah. With the righteousness, I understand that we can stand before God in righteousness and be sinless, but it also says that we're going to be judged for you know, our sins of commission and omission. So in that way, we will be judged. So, I mean, we won't really be righteous. I mean, we will be, but yeah. we're still going to be judged. You know what I'm saying? When, we stand before, when I stand before Christ to be judged at the Bema seat, which I think you're talking about, it will not be that Christ says, you know, Alan, here's where you fouled up. You fouled up here, you fouled up there. You forgot to... That's not going to be a judgment of condemnation. It's a judgment of reward. Totally different perspective. God is not... Because why is it? Every sin that I've ever committed, according to Psalm 103.12, has been removed from me as far as the east is from the west. It's been put in the depths of the deepest ocean. Now to the Jew, that's an inaccessible spot. You drop it in the ocean, you don't get to it. So from God's perspective, when, 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 from the forensic respect, all my sin has been expunged from my record. There's not even a record of it. The, the book that has all my sins in it has been erased, burned, deleted by God. So he doesn't see that. As far as the judicial record of heaven goes, that is inadmissible evidence. It's not going to be ever brought in the court. What is going to be brought in is my faithfulness. How well have I lived my Christian life? I'm going to receive a reward for that. So when I stand before God, he's going to say, Alan, you did this and you did that, and I want you to know that I appreciate that, and here's your reward based on your faithfulness to, to my word, to what, I've, what I wanted you to be. It's a, it's a, it's a judgment of reward. Yeah, and that's where those, the idea of the crowns come in. Crowns. Yeah. Because the on the cross, he just professed faith and really live a life, a Christian life. Mm -hmm. And what, we talked about crowns earlier. There's a podcast out there somewhere. I got all the podcasts up now. There's a podcast out there somewhere that we talked about the crowns in, in detail and, and that. But, but it's, a, it's a reward. It's, it's a judgment of reward. It's sort of like, um, you know, sort of like the Olympics. You know, at the end of the race, the people who win go up and receive a, a, a gold medallion. Now, they don't put the losers up there and say, you know, this guy really screwed up. You know, he should have worked harder and, you know, shame on him for not winning the race. They don't do that, right? It's a, it's a reward of, it's a, it's a judgment of reward. Is that, because, and that, that's a fear. People say, well, I'm going to get to heaven and Christ is going to look at me and just shake his head and say, you know, you really fouled up. You could have done a whole lot better. We're not going to get that. 
we, so we might be aware of that, but we won't be judged for that. Okay. That's what, a difference. What, what I'm saying is it'll be pointed out to us. I don't think God will point it out as much as we will know it. Okay. I mean, he's not going to need to point it out. Well, you know, there comes a point where God does wipe away all tears from our eyes that, that there'll be re no more remembrance of the former things. You're not going to spend eternity fretting about how you didn't do something down here. Right. And that's not going to happen. All right? And there, there's a certain maybe mysteriousness and fuzziness that's there. But the Bible is very clear that I will not stand condemned for any of my sin because if I were, I would not get to heaven. Right? One sin's enough to keep me out. So it has to be forgiven and expunged, and Psalm 103.12 says, it's moved from as far as the east is from the west, it's drowned in the depths of the, dark, uh, the darkest sea. God remembers it no more. And even in, the, even in the, um, the New Covenant, he talks about their sins, I will remember no more. So how is that? Well, somebody paid the penalty. Someone took my place. Somebody did that. And that's what it's saying here, that he can be the just and the justifier. Um, of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. So then what becomes of our boasting? Can anybody boast about being in heaven? No, because it's not by anything you did, right? Somebody paid the penalty. The only thing you did was believe. Somebody paid the penalty. And he says it excludes boasting. No one's going to go to heaven and talk about how they earned their way in. You don't need that. I'd be irritated standing by somebody who always wanted to remind me of just what he gave up to get there. That'd be irritating. You know? Um, yeah, we, we all are there because of God's grace and because Christ took my place. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, by law of faith. That's principle there. By what principle am I forgiven? How, how is boasting excluded? Well, he asks a silly question. Is boasting excluded by the principle of law. Well, no, because if you do it, you have a right to boast. Mm -hmm. right. But it's by faith. That's what excludes it. Mm -hmm. Works isn't going to exclude it because in chapter 4, verse 1, he said, what about Abraham? If he was justified by works, he has something to boast about. That's, that's a rhetorical question. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. How is it that God declares you righteousness? By faith. Not by the works of the law. And is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also the God of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also. Seeing God is one, he will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised is through faith. How does God justify Jew or Gentile? Faith. It's not by works. It's not by what we do. And that's what allows God to justify us, to declare us righteous. It's not because you earn the righteous declaration. It's not because you've worked to get righteous. It's because you believe and somebody else paid the penalty for you. And that righteousness is credited to your account as though you did it. How are you justified? By faith. By faith. Not by works. And, and um, I'm not going to go through Romans 4, but in Romans 4 what Paul does is he talks about Abraham and David. How was Abraham justified? By works? Well, no. Because in Genesis 15, 6, it says Abraham believed God and was credited him for righteousness. And now, did he get that righteousness when he had the law? No, because when did the law come? 
over 400 years later. Abraham was, see what the Jew says, well, Abraham was justified by the law because he kept it. There was no law to keep. It wasn't given yet. There wasn't any way he could keep something that was not yet revealed. They said, well, he just knew what it was and kept it. Well, that's just mumbo jumbo because nothing in the Bible says that. And then it says, well, did he receive this by circumcision? That was the second big thing to the Jew. Well, no, because if you look at the chronology of Genesis, Abraham was justified at age 86. He was circumcised at age 99. So he was justified for 13 years before he ever got circumcised. And Paul is demolishing this concept that justification in the Jewish mind, that justification is by law, by hereditary, and by circumcision. It's not by any three of those things. It's only by faith. That's the only way you get it. That's how Abraham got it. And if you go back and read your own Old Testament, guys, you'd see that. Just read it. You've missed it. And how was David justified? It certainly wasn't because he gave a sacrifice. It's because he asked God to forgive him. And it's always been that way. And the promise is not void by the giving of the law later. Abraham was justified by faith. And then in Romans 5, 1, it says, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have peace with God. We'll look at that in a minute. Um, probably get through the site here first. How are you justified? By faith, by grace. Remember, justification is always founded in the grace of God. His unmerited, unearned favor that he gives you. By definition, it can't be earned because if it's earned, it's by works. It's always by grace. And what's the result of justification? Well, the remission of sin's penalty. This is the forensic component of this. What's the penalty of sin? Eternal death. That's been rescinded. I will never face eternal death for my sin, ever. Because I've been justified by Christ, by God. I will never face that. The penalty of sin, I will never face of death. Now, I'm going to physically die, all right, because this mortal cannot inhabit eternity. I get a new body, so it's not death in the eternal sense of the word. There's a physical death component, but not eternal death component. I will never die eternally. And there's no condemnation to those. What's the idea of condemnation? I will never stand condemned before God because I've been justified. I love verse 8, Romans 8, 33. Who's going to lay anything to the guard, charge of God's elect? Who is going to be able to walk into the court of heaven and lay a charge on me that sticks? Who could do that? Well, it is God that justifies. So, God's not going to do that, right? Because he's the justifier. God's not going to say, um, as, as, the, as the judge of the universe, well, I'm going to bring in some new evidence and we're going to condemn you anyhow. He's the one that does the justification. That doesn't make any sense. What about Christ? Is Christ going to condemn me? No. He died for me. There's no way he's going to condemn me. Those are the only two that could ever say anything that would stick. Is Satan going to be able to do anything? No. no. Neither life, nor death, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, 
nor any other creation will lay anything to the charge of God's elect that will stick. I'm, I'm acquitted. There's, there's, and this is a permanent thing. There, there's no appeal on this one. There's no successful appeal to rescind my justification in the court of God. I will never stand condemned. And here's where we're going to go. The rest of restoration of divine favor. What does that mean? Well, let's read chapter 5 of Romans. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have peace with God. What does that mean? Now, there are people that say, look, you know, I don't have any bad thing against God. You know, he's sort of my friend. Well, if you're a sinner, God is your enemy. You may not feel like you're God's enemy, but God is your enemy. You're a sinner. God, God, his face is set against you. There is a war between you and God. And there are people that say, well, I don't have anything against God. That's irrelevant. God has something against you. And what does justification do? It restores peace between me and God. The war is over between God and I. There is no more war. He is now my friend. And through him we also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Here's a couple of things else too we have. Number one, we have obtained access through faith. Access to what? That's a fascinating Greek word. It means prosagoge. Prosagoge. And what that was used is an introduction. In those days, you didn't just, unless you crashed the party at the White House, you just don't walk up to the president and shake his hand, right? Someone's got to introduce you. Someone's got to give you entree into the presence of the president. All right? Supposedly. Yeah. They got to give you entree. What has Christ done? Here's what the Bible says Christ has done. Christ has introduced us to the Father. How do I have access to God the Father? Because Christ introduces me. Christ, in an essence, takes me into the presence of God and says, Father, this is my friend, Alan. I paid for his sin. I want you to see him. I want you to, I'm going to introduce you to him. It's something that God has, that Christ has done. He has taken us into the very throne room of God. He is our access. And that's what it's talking about here. What is one of the results of my justifications? I have access to God the Father. Think about that. I can go into God's presence through prayer any time of the day or night and be in his presence. And it's not because I'm a wonderful person. That's not the point. It's because Christ gave me entree into his presence. I have access to, to, to God. And not only that, I rejoice in hope of the glory of God. What's rejoice in hope? Well, hope is a settled conviction of a future reality, right? What's going to happen to me someday? I'm going to get glorified. I'm going to get it all. Uh, because I'm justified, I, I rest in hope knowing that someday, and again, hope is not maybe or maybe not. Hope is I'll get it, I just don't have it yet. Someday I'm going to be like Christ. Someday I'm going to receive a glorified body. I'm going to stand in God's presence without sin. And why is that? Because I've been justified. I don't have it yet, but I will someday. It's a sure thing. And also in verse 3, I can rejoice in my suffering, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance character, and character hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, 
who has been given to us. Even the garbage of life that I got to deal with is going to work for me a better way of glory, right? Because someday it's going to be worth it all. The, the battles, the trials, the difficulties I go through produce godly character in me. It's all a win-win. You understand this is all win-win-win-win? We win it all. And why is that? Because we've been justified. We've been declared not guilty before the bar of God because Christ paid our penalty. He took our place. And when did he do this? When did Christ do this? When we were his friends? When we were his enemies. Think about that. You were his enemy. People say, well, I was an enemy of God. Well, yeah, you were. God was at war with you. So much so that you were headed for an eternity apart from him. That's how much at war he was with you. And what's it say here? Christ did this when we were weak. Christ died for the ungodly. And then he gives us axiomatic truth. Well, for a righteous man or good man, some would die, right? How many people would die for the ungodly? How many of you would take the place of a mass murder and an execution? No. What did Christ do? Christ took the place of his enemies, of the people who hated him, of those that were eternally separated from him. But God shows his love for us in verse 8 and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood. What does that mean? His, his death. How is it that I'm justified by his death, his payment for my sin, the satisfaction for my sin? Much more shall we be saved, from him, him, saved by him from the wrath of God. For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? Now that I'm God's friend, what's he going to do? If he, if he, and this is, a, this, is a, this is a common thing in Paul, it's an argument from lesser, to the greater to the lesser. If God did the greater thing by dying for you when you were his abject enemy, when you, when you hated him, now that you're his friend, what is he going to do? Is he going to do any less? What's harder for God to do, die for you when you were a sinner or keep you now that you're saved? Keep you. It's easy. You're his friend now. You're not the enemy anymore. The harder thing was for Christ to die for the ungodly. Much more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Some have said the atonement. What does it mean, the atonement? Uh, the word atonement is the same Greek word, the same root word, meaning propitiation, satisfaction. And the Old Testament was used to refer to the mercy seat. Christ's death, his blood paid the full penalty for my sin, allowing me to stand before God perfect and righteous. And it's his justification that did that. It's his payment. And I have Christ's righteousness imputed to me. And that's the end of this. That righteousness might be imputed unto them also. What does it mean to impute, to credit, to an account? On what basis did God credit righteousness to Abraham? He believed. We're beating a horse to death, but Paul is trying to beat it into the 
heads of the Jews because they didn't get it. Abraham was not justified by works. He was justified by believing God. And that act of belief allowed God to credit his perfect righteousness to Abraham's account. That's what impute means, to credit to an account. So what's the upshot of justification? You're declared righteous. You're as righteous as Christ is. God looks at you. He sees an infinitely righteous person as far as the judicial components of the law are concerned. There is that parental forgiveness that we still need, and we're going to talk about that. But when it comes to the eternal penalty for sin, we will never pay that because Christ did it for us. He took our place. He paid the penalty for me. And so the basis of his death that allows God to not only be just, because sin had to be paid for, but to also be the justifier of those who believe, because somebody paid it for you. That's the, per, that's the whole concept behind justification. And it goes, goes to the substitutionary atonement. What does that mean? Christ took our place. And this is not cosmic child abuse. This is God dying voluntarily for us. That's the point. That's what it says in Romans 5. And, you know, again, you're going to read about this probably in the coming years ahead as these heresies come and go and ebb and flow. They, they come, they go, they ebb, they flow. You need to understand the reason you stand forgiven before God is Jesus stepped in and took the wrath that you deserved. All of it. Unmixed. God didn't dilute it down. He took the full measure of it drank that cup all the way down to the dregs for us. And he did that when we were his enemy. So now that we're his friend, what's he going to do? He's going to keep us. He's going to keep us. Now another great word that's used by Paul is adoption. We talk about adoption. We, you know, we have an, adoption is a common thing in our society. And... Uh, in the, in the New Testament, the word huiothesia means to really to place a son, to, to place a son into a family. That's the concept behind adoption. And uh, in Ephesians 1.5, Paul starts talking about this. He predestinates unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. This is the richness behind this picture. Not only did God... Forgive me for my sin. Not only did he give me the infinite righteousness of Christ, but God placed me into his family. That's wild. It's not that I just, you know, get to hang around the outside of the mansion. I'm in the mansion. And not only that, but since Christ is a natural born son, and I am an adopted son, in the Roman judicial concept, there's no difference between me and Christ. We're going to explain that. There's no difference. As far as God is concerned, I'm every bit as much his son as Christ is his son. That's the richness of this concept of adoption. When you were adopted in the Roman legal system, and Romans had this adoption, adoptio, it's called in Latin, you're given a new name. Now, first of all, here's a question. Why would somebody be adopted in the Roman system? Well, in the Roman system, the, the family unit consisted of the father and the household, and the father was absolute, had absolute sole authority over his household. So much so that he could put to death his children and be 
blameless before the law. I mean, it was that, it was that strict a thing. And as a father, as, as, as a, the head of the household, you might look at your sons and see a bunch of losers. They had, this, they had losers in those days like they have them today, all right? And you look around and you say, you know, or you may not even have a son. You might not even have a son. And it's very important in those days that you pass the property, the inheritance, the family name on to an heir. Well, if you didn't have a son, what did you do? If you didn't have an heir to pass it on to, what did you do? Well, the Roman system allowed you to adopt someone, to be your son. And it is though that person was nat your natural-born son and had all the rights and privileges of a natural-born son. And it was usually because you needed an heir. And you would, again, if you had a bunch of losers, what kind of person are you going to pick to be your heir? Another loser? No, you're going you're to find somebody that... Responsible. That's responsible, that's worthy yep. in the Roman system. Now that's where it's different with Christ. When Christ looked down, was any of us worthy? Nope. But he adopted us anyways. In the Roman system, when you were adopted, you were given a new name. It's as though you just came into existence at that point. Legally, it's that you came into existence at that point in time. So if I was a Roman father and I didn't have an heir, and I would adopt Marshall as my son... He would now be known as Marshall Schaefer. The, his, his previous name of Whitehead would be expunged from all official records. It's though he never existed as a Whitehead at, at all. He would be a new, like, like just brand spanking new. His name, he would have a new name. He would lose all connections to his old family. It's as though his old family didn't even exist. Legally, there would be no connections at all to his old family. If he knew what that family was, he may not know who the family was, but he would, it's though he, he was born into my family as my natural born son and didn't exist to any other family. His past was erased. If he was a criminal, the criminal record would be expunged. No matter what he did, it would be erased. There would be no record of it. He would receive a new inheritance. He would receive the inheritance that I would give him. As though he was never existed. He, he came into existence as my son. Now look at the richness of what that means. Adoption. When we think of adoption, we think, oh, God's looking around. He sees this poor waif on the street that's starving to death and out of pity adopts us. That's not the, that's not the picture. That's not the Roman picture. That's the U.S. picture. That's not the Roman picture. The Roman picture, it's, it's, it was a great honor to be adopted. This was a thing of honor. In fact, it was such a thing of honor that in many ways the adopted son was even more honored than the natural born sons because that adopted son was specifically chosen by the father. There's, there's, there's even a, an honor to be adopted. Unlike today where adoption is sort of like, you know, an act of charity or compassion or mercy. But when we came to Christ and we're adopted into God's family, what do we get? We get a new name, Revelation, right? There's a new name written down in heaven. We lose all connections to our old family. What's our old family? Who are we identified with? And 
Adam, right? That's what it means to put off the old man. Our identification with Adam, this is the rest of Romans 5 that we're not going to go through, but our identification with Adam is expunged, it's erased. We're no longer identified with Adam in any way. Adam is death. Adam is condemnation. Adam is the old. Christ is the new. We're now in a new family. We have a new father. We have a new name. And what happens to our, ra our, pa our past? It's erased. It's expunged. That book that that angel's been keeping on you with all your sins that's really big gets tossed in the fire. It's erased. It says it never existed. And you receive what? What do we get? A new inheritance. We get an inheritance in heaven, don't we? You, sound, you understand the richness of what this is saying here? And don't, again, don't think adoption is in the, 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 the mentality we have today where it's an act of pity on a child to adopt a child. That's not the, the picture in view in the New Testament. It is an honorable thing. I've been adopted into God's family. I am one of God's children. And by the way, understand, this was unrescindable. You couldn't undo this. Legally, this is a, when you did this, you, it was done. And they would write the contract and it would be witnessed by seven Romans so that there would always be a witness available to say that this thing really happened. I mean, it was, it was a, a very involved legal procedure to ensure that later on a natural-born son could not come along and say, well, God, Dad really didn't adopt him because they could pull out the record and there would be seven witnesses that would say that it happened. And any one of those seven witnesses could attest to the validity of the adoption. It's irrescindable. You can't undo it. How does spiritual adoption differ from civil adoption? Well, we never adopt our children, but God never adopts any other, any other but his own child. That's probably worded badly. We, we don't adopt our own children, right? We adopt others. God, I'm trying to think what I meant by that. I'm, I'm confused by that one. Can anybody explain what I meant by that? <laughs> You ever get you ever one of those things where you just okay now what did I mean when I was saying that? I'm not sure what I said by that. I'll have to figure that one out. Civil adoption provides comfort for the childless, but God had a beloved son prior to adopting us. God already had a beloved son. He didn't have to adopt anybody else, did he? He had the perfect heir, right? It's not that God said, Well, Christ, I can't I can't give him any inheritance. I've got to find another one to give the inheritance to. No. He adopted us to be joint heirs. That's, that's a good Romans 8 word, right? Mm -hmm. We're not only heirs, but we're joint heirs. What does that mean? We all inherit all of it. Mm -hmm. We're co-heirs. We're co-heirs. It means when you're a co-heir, it's not that you get a little slice and you get a little slice and you get a little slice. It's that you all get all of it. There are many pleasing qualities in a child to enable them to be adopted civilly, but God found no good qualities in us. It's not that God looked down and said, I've got to find some really decent people to adopt. There weren't any decent people to adopt. That's the point. But he adopted us anyway. He made us part of his family. He brought us in and made us join heirs with Jesus Christ. We're, we're as much a child of his as Christ is. 
Civil adoption never gives the child the nature of the father, but God has adopted or given the very mind of Christ. We're not only adopted as children, we're given his very nature. That's, that's something different. Who's known the mind of the Lord that may instruct him? We have the mind of Christ. God not only adopted me, but he gave me understanding in all kinds of things, right? He's given me his spirit that enables me to understand spiritual truth. And then in our society, you could nullify a civil adoption, but God's adoption would never be nullified. It would never be rescinded. It would never be undone. It's a, it's a permanent thing. How does it compare? When, when you look at spiritual adoption and the civil adoption of that day, how does it compare? Well, the father needs to instigate it. It's not that you go around saying, I want to find somebody to adopt me. That's not the way it works. The father is the one who initiates the adoption process. What did God do with us? He initiated the process. We didn't, he did. God loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. These are just a couple of verses, but it's the father who seeks. It's the father who goes out and takes the initiative to adopt us as his children. We don't take that. We don't earn that. We don't cajole him into doing that. Would you please adopt me? The father is the one who takes the initiative. Both adoptions give an inheritance to one who previously had none. Did we have an inheritance as an unadopted child of God? Yeah, what was it? Hell, that was your inheritance. Death, hell, that's your inheritance. That's what you get. But God comes along and adopts me into his family, and so what do I get? I get eternal life. I get a home in heaven. I get a new nature. I get a new name. I get all the inheritance that Christ has is mine as well. Both adoptions provide a new name. Revelation 21, 217 The one who overcomes what is get a white stone and the stone a new name written which no man knows except the one who receives it. What's the idea in, the, in those days? What was the idea behind a new name? A new start. A new beginning. When Jesus renamed Simon to Peter, what would that signify? A new beginning. A new start. When Paul was renamed from Saul, what did that mean? Paul had a new start. A new beginning. When Jacob was given the name of Israel, what did that mean? It was a new beginning. When Abram became Abraham, it was a new beginning. We have a new beginning. I have a new name. And, and that disconnects me from what I was before. Because in the Hebrew mindset, your name was an encapsulation of all that you were. So by getting a new name, you're disconnecting yourself from what you were to bringing you into something new. And that's what adoption does for us. And that's where we'll stop. Yeah, on forgiveness. Adoption, folks, is a wonderful thing. And when you read Romans 8, I would encourage you to do that. We don't have time because the other class will throw me out of here. But if you read Romans 8, it talks about adoption. We are adopted into God's family. We're given a new name. He is our Father, whereby we now cry, Abba, Father. He is not the distant God who created the universe. He is my Father. And that is a rich and wonderful concept to understand and get your head around. So we'll pick up with forgiveness next week.
All right, well, let's close in prayer. Father, thanks so much for this time you granted us to study your word. Thank you, Father, that you have justified us in your sight. You have declared us righteous, not because we are righteous, but because Christ paid the penalty that was due us. And not only have you forgiven us, Father, not only have you declared us righteous, but you've gone farther and adopted us into your family and made us a joint heir with Christ. Father, we, don't even, we can't even understand the richness of what that means, the sight of glory. We, we, we can read about it, but we just don't get it. All we can do is thank you for the riches that are ours and for the fact that you're our Father, that we now can call you Father and not be afraid of you and you have, we have access because of our justification. Thank you for this. And help us to comprehend in a small way the riches of what we have in you that we may live accordingly. In Christ's name, amen.